Parker and the worship team. Good morning. Um, my name is Mike Brumel. I'm one of the elders at JICF. And uh, this morning we're going to continue going through the, the book of uh, Matthew. We uh, had begun um, probably a month and a half or two months ago. And uh, we're now uh, continuing on through chapter 4. And we're having technical difficulties. <laughs> okay, thanks. What we're going to be looking at this morning is how and why uh, Jesus was tempted and how he responded to that temptation. We're also going to be looking at what lessons we can learn for ourselves from how Jesus uh, reacted and perhaps what are some of the core issues that we're tempted in. So we're going to look at the scripture, but before we read it, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we're thankful that you put this uh, scripture in here that talks about the various ways in which Satan tempted your son, trying to get him to prove that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. We thank you that he withstood the test and was tempted, but was without sin. Father, we pray that we can learn this morning from how Satan tempted him, that we might learn how Satan may tempt us, and that we can know how we should respond, learning from what Jesus did. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So we'll be reading from uh, Matthew uh, 4, 1 through 11, um, in the uh, NIV version. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Now, um, this sermon, this particular passage, is set in the, the desert, in the wilderness. Um, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of, of wilderness. I grew up in, in Southern California. And I remember the, what's called the Mojave Desert. It's very flat. 
Um, and that's when I first used to read these passages, that what I, that's kind of the thing that I envisioned. But um, I think what we see here and what you should picture in the wilderness was something like this. It's very dry, very mountainous. If you've, if you've been to Israel, um, you'll see this kind of thing. Um, and this is what also the Israelites probably would have had to have gone through when they went um, through from Egypt to, into the uh, promised land. This is the kind of wilderness, this is the kind of thing that they faced. So I hope you can picture this in your mind. Now, we've also been looking at the parallels between what happened to Israel and Moses and what happened to Jesus. And we've talked about this a couple of times. Um, One of the things is we saw that uh, just like Israel and Moses came out of Egypt, uh, in chapter 2 it talks about how Jesus and his parents had gone to Egypt and then they were coming out of Egypt. We also see that they went through the water. They went through the Red Sea. That's Israel and Moses. And then we read about Jesus having been baptized in the Jordan River. So Jesus is kind of a picture, again, of what happened to Israel, what happened to Moses. And then we also saw in the Old Testament that Israel, Moses, they they were tempted in the and tested in the wilderness for 40 years. And now we're reading about Jesus being tested in the wilderness for 40 days. You can see all these parallels between the two. And I think Matthew was written to the Jewish audience, and I think these kinds of references would have reminded them of the Old Testament. The difference, though, and there is a big difference, is that when Israel and Moses were tested in the wilderness for 40 years, they sinned. They disobeyed God. And what we'll learn in this passage today is Jesus was tested, but he did not sin. Now, we'll walk through the passage and try to understand a little more thoroughly what this means. The first word in this passage is then, and it's, it's important. There's a connection between the beginning of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 3. Okay? And the connection is, is this. If you look at chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, it talks about Jesus' baptism. We, we heard about that two weeks ago. And it talks about Jesus being baptized. And it says, at that time, at that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. God the Father was speaking from heaven and identifying Jesus as the Son of God. And what we're going to see in this passage is Satan is basically challenging Jesus, prove it. If you are the Son of God, prove it. If you're the Son of God, prove it. So that's what we're reading today, is we're going to read these challenges from Satan to Jesus to prove that he is the Son of God. The Son of God, by the way, terminology also is implying that Jesus is the Messiah. The two terms, Son of God and Messiah, were used together. Um, And I think there's four passages I'd like to bring to your attention. You may remember Jesus was uh, asking his disciples who they thought he was and who other people thought he was. And Peter said, you are the Messiah, comma, the Son of the living God. Martha, when she's uh, talking to um, Jesus after Lazarus has died, she says, yes, Lord, She replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, comma, the Son of God. John, at the end of the chapter, uh, end of the book of John, 
talks about the reasons he wrote the book of John, and he says, I'm writing this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And even Caiaphas, when he, Jesus is put on trial, he says, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So by identifying Jesus, when God the Father spoke and said, you are my son, he's saying, you are the Son of God, and he's saying, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah you, you Jewish uh, people have been waiting for. And then Satan comes along next and starts challenging Jesus to prove that he indeed is who God says he is. Now, what we read here is that Jesus was led into the Spirit, by the Spirit, rather, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay? Before I tell you what it says, <laughs> let me tell you what it doesn't say. If you read it quickly, you may not um, have focused on this, but it's not saying that God tempted Jesus, right? The temptation came from the devil. But it does say the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness, into a place where Satan did tempt him. God does not tempt us, but God may lead us into a place where, where Satan tempts us. This is what it says in James. It says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. God does not tempt us, but he will allow us to be tested and brought into a place where Satan may tempt us. Okay? Why? Why would God do that? Why would God put us into a position where we're being tested, when we're being tested by him, when we're being tempted by the devil? This is in Deuteronomy 8, and this again refers back to the nation of Israel, and Moses is talking to them, and he says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. And it explains what was happening, why God led them in the wilderness for 40 years. He did that to humble them and to test them in order to know what was in their heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Now, I was trying to picture this. Um, I was thinking, I'm not a parent, by the way, uh, but I know many of you are parents. <laughs> and I was asking uh, one of the, the ladies I know, I said, have you ever tested your children? She thought, hmm, have I tested my children? And she goes, yeah, actually I have. <laughs> she may have known that her child did something, Okay. But she wants to see if her child is actually an honest person, has learned the value of telling the truth. So she may ask her, her son that, did, that said something, did you say this? And by the answer the son gives, she'll know whether the son is honest or not. And the son, I think, will come to realize if he's honest or not. He'll either be telling the truth or not. That's kind of what God does with us. You know, it's difficult to know what's in our heart until we're tested by a, a particular situation. And once we're in that situation, then we come to realize who we are. We come to realize who other people are. You probably know people like that. They appear one way, but when they face some kind of difficulty, the true character really comes out. You know, if you're a, if you're a businessman, um, if you, you can go around and say you're honest, but when you're faced with a really difficult financial situation and, and the possibility that maybe you can save your business by paying a bribe, do you do it? <laughs> That's a test. 
You may have looked at yourself all your life like you're an honest person, but when that test comes, the real you is, is becoming evident. And that's what God did with the Israelites in the desert, and that's what um, was happening here. This was, uh, God was, was uh, making clear what kind of person, what kind of character Jesus had. Continuing on in the passage, it says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Um, now, I'm sure there's uh, skeptics in the audience that say, well, this must be a fairy tale because nobody can possibly live without food for 40 days. Okay? Well, just to address that, in case anybody's thinking that, um, I, I did a little of a Google search, and uh, this is a quotation from uh, Scientific American, which is a very well-respected scientific magazine. Okay? And it talks here about the fact that there are cases where people were, were uh, on hunger strikes and there's well-documented cases where they were on hunger strikes and not eating anything for 28, 36, 38, and even 40 days. Okay? In addition, there's a footnote there that talks about uh, in 1981 there were hunger strikes in Northern Ireland against the, the UK government. And there's 10 individuals that actually died <laughs> fasting. But they lived between 46 and 73 days after they started on their hunger strike. So I think that will show you the limit <laughs> of how long you can live without food. 46 to 73 days. I guess it depends on the person, how much fat you have. I think I'd probably be on the longer end of that. <laughs> But uh, you can live 40 days and 40 nights without food. I don't think you can do that without water very easily, but um, anyway. Now, how was Jesus tempted? And there's three temptations. Um, very simply, I'm going to use one word to describe each of the, the three temptations. Um, one, the first, the first temptation was dealing with uh, comfort, where Satan was offering Hey, Jesus, you should, you should eat. You're hungry. Here, just turn this rock into to food. The second one was significance, where Satan was tempting Jesus to go to the top of the temple and ju jump off, and basically he's saying, you're so significant, surely the angels will, will come and, and rescue you. And in fact, he even quotes uh, Psalm 91 as a Bible passage to try to persuade Jesus that he should jump off the, the temple. And the last one is control. He's saying, okay, I've, I've got control of the whole world, Jesus, and I'm going to give that to you if you, if you come down and, and, and are willing to worship me. So those were the three things, comfort, significance, and control, things that Satan was trying to tempt Jesus with. Okay? Now, the, the fact is, Jesus will end up having all three of those, right? He's going to be comforted. He's going to be increasingly significant above and beyond any, any other person. And he will have control over the whole world, the whole universe. What Satan was doing, though, is Satan was tempting him, Jesus, you deserve it now. <laughs> and oftentimes I find in our lives, that's often how we fall into sin. It's not that what we want is necessarily wrong. We just want it sooner than God wants to give it to us. We want it now. And probably especially um, in these days, we are very impatient. We want what we want, and we want it now. 
And I think you look at the biblical history, you look at uh, Abraham. God promised him that he would have many descendants. And what happened is, after a while, he got tired of waiting. And then Sarah persuaded him to sleep with Pimbantu, his Pimbantu Hagar. And it wasn't that he shouldn't have a child, but he needed to wait for almost 25 years. And he, he, he got tired after, I think, 11 years of waiting. That's often what sin is. And I think in these cases, these things were, Jesus was entitled to, but Satan was saying, hey, Jesus, you should have these things, and you should have these things now. now the first temptation is uh, comfort. talks about Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And it says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Again, Satan is questioning whether what God the Father had said when Jesus was baptized was actually true. Was he indeed the Son of God? Okay, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, prove it. Prove it to me. And he was offering something, asking him or encouraging him to do a miracle to prove it, but the miracle was also a miracle that would have uh, violated what Jesus uh, felt that God had wanted him to do, which was to to be fasting during that 40-day period. And Jesus' response to this is to quote a passage in the Old Testament. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not uh, live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now let's look at the original uh, setting for that particular passage. And this is in Deuteronomy 8. In fact, Jesus responds, for all three temptations, he responds from passages in, in Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. And here, Moses is talking to the nation of Israel, and he's reminding them that in the desert, every day, they were given manna. And only for that day, and it was very evident that that manna came directly from God. It was something that nobody had ever seen before. It was a kind of food that nobody had ever eaten before. But it was very evident to people because of this that the food came from God. You know? And I think today, oftentimes, you know, we, where did we get food? Do we really even think about the fact that the food came from God? <laughs> when we thank God for our meals... You know, I think if you ask your kids, where does this food come from? They probably say, well, from the grocery store (laughs) or from the farmer. (laughs) But ultimately, of course, it comes from God, right? (laughs) And it was very evident to the people in Israel that that was the case because it was manna every day that was provided to them. Moses reminds them, he says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. And the reason he did that, it says, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God was trying to teach the Israelites to depend on God and realize that ultimately he's the source of their, their food, their sustenance. And that's what, this is the particular passage that Satan repeat, or God, or Jesus rather repeats back to Satan um, to uh, counter the temptation to be comforted by turning this, that rock into food. The second temptation was, was significance. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, prove it. <laughs> if you are the Son of God, prove it by throw your, throwing yourself down, it says. 
For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan's becoming very clever. Satan is actually quoting the Bible (laughs) to try to persuade Jesus to do something. And I would obviously recognize the fact that this is taken out of context, and Jesus talks about the fact it's taken out of context. But Satan is quoting Scripture. And unfortunately, I think in, in many churches today, what is taught as the Word of God is actually falsehood. may even be from Satan. Because people are quoting Scripture to try to persuade people that something is true that's not true, or that's not true that is true. You know, I've, I've heard uh, many people, um, many preachers that talk about the fact that, well, God wants you to be wealthy. Is that really what God's intention for us is? Has really God promised that we're going to be wealthy? But, but some people take the Word of God, they twist it, and try to make it mean that. And I think if you look at the scripture, if you're familiar with it, you'll recognize that's not what God is promising us to, to be, is to be wealthy. What is Jesus' response to this? He says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. He's not going to fall for the trap of, of Satan, who's trying to persuade him, you're so significant, you jump off and the angels are going to rescue you. And he realized that if he did that, he would be putting the Lord, his God, to the test. Now, he's, again, quoting Scripture. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6. And in this passage, again, Moses is talking to the nation of Israel. He says, Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the God of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you. He will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. So we actually have to look back about 40 years to see what Moses is referring to here. What happened at Massa? How did the people of Israel put God to the test? Well, it says in Exodus, it talks about what happened. It says, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin. They encamped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? This is what happened. The people got impatient. The people got demanding. Rather than waiting for God to provide them with water, which he surely would have, they they wanted water and they wanted it then. And they weren't even looking to God for the water. They were looking to Moses. And, and they were threatening him because they didn't have water. They were threatening God's servants rather than looking to God. They were, when we say that God was being tested, um, it's almost as if they were demanding something. It's almost as if God was their heavenly waiter who they expected to do what they wanted to do and provide for them when, when they wanted it provided for. And unfortunately, I think oftentimes we, we tend to be that way too. Sometimes when we go to God in prayer, it's like we have a laundry list of things we want God to do for us. <laughs> Rather than prayer being our response to God and asking God, what God do you want me to do for you? <laughs> Oftentimes we go to prayer and we ask God what we want him to do for us. And not only do we want him to do things for us, we want him to do it now. <laughs> and that's exactly what was happening. He was putting God to the, the, the people of Israel were putting God to the test. The third temptation 
that we look at is, is one of, of control. He was tempted to take control of the world now, which he eventually would have. But Satan was saying, if you, if you worship me, I'll give you control and, and all authority over all kingdoms of the world now. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He says, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And again, what happens is Jesus quotes back scripture to him. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, again in Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He was not going to worship Satan so that he could have the authority now that God had granted him to have at a later date. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Here we see in Deuteronomy 6, this is the, the passage that Jesus is quoting from. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. Serve him only. And that's what Jesus was quoting. Now, how does this apply in our lives? Um, what I'm about to talk about is going to be somewhat familiar to the men in this group that have attended Authentic Manhood on Saturday morning. Um, actually, I was in that, that uh, Authentic Manhood class for a couple of years, and we went through a number of uh, volumes of that. And when I saw something, I connected it with this particular passage, and, and I found it to be very, very applicable. Just like Jesus um, was... Uh, tempted in these three areas, to have comfort, to have significance, to have control. Now, these are things that I think are the root of a lot of our sin, a lot of the temptations that, that we have. And this is a helpful um, illustration. Um, it calls those three things, the desire for comfort, the desire for significance, the desire for control, it calls those things deep idols. They're things that we worship, things that we want, things that we... Uh, have a passion to achieve. And at the top, there are, are what are called uh, surface idols. They're, they're um, things that we see in people's lives that are evident, that are visible to us. So we may see someone is involved in sexual immorality. We may see somebody's angry. We may see somebody's impatient. We may see that somebody's greedy. We may see that somebody is envious. But the question as to why they're that way, I think, often can be um, determined if we try to figure out which among these three things are the root cause of that action or that attitude. Um, let me give you an example from my own life. <laughs> um, I, I run a business, and uh, we have some people come in and do training every now and then. And uh, including in that are, are the people I work with and my subordinates give me feedback on, on how I behave, okay? And one of the things that, that came to my attention, um, I guess within the last year or so, is that some people said I tend to be very impatient. You know, there'll be people that come to my office and want to talk to me, and I'm very busy, and then they go around and around and around. And, and, and that's like, okay, so please, what's the point? <laughs> You know, I try to get down to the point, just be quick, just be brief. And after, if, and then I go around and around and around. 
And, and, and I get very impatient. And, and it's pretty obvious that I'm impatient with people. Now, um, so maybe my, my surface idol is impatience, <laughs> okay? But why am I impatient, okay? And then I started looking at myself, well, it's, it's maybe because I, my deep idol is significance. I, said, I, I say to myself, hey, I'm, I'm an important person. I'm, I'm very busy. You know, you have to value my time. I'm so significant. <laughs> so maybe my deep idol is significance. The outgrowth of it, the evidence of it in my life is I'm impatient with people. You understand how that works? Okay, let me give you another example. I'll give you two more examples. Let's say you have, have some guy who's really attracted to this, this beautiful girl um, and really lusts after her, okay? Now, he wants to be involved with this girl. He wants to, to marry her, date, date her, marry her. Why? It could really be for any of these three reasons below, <laughs> Okay? It could be that he's looking for somebody that will be a comfort to him, will console him when he's sad, make him happy uh, when he's, or make, make, uh, um, understand and talk to him when he doesn't have anybody to talk to, have sex. These, these are the kind of things that may give that person comfort. Maybe that's why he's attracted to this girl. It may be, that's not the reason, it may be because he, he's looking to find significance in this girl. He wants to walk into the mall with this girl in his arm, and everybody goes, wow, how did he get that girl? <laughs> you know? And maybe he wants to impress his friends, his family, with this, with this beautiful girl, okay? He's looking for significance. That's his deep idol, you see? And he's finding it in that kind of activity. It also may be that he's looking to have somebody to control. He wants somebody that will do what he says, and in fact, I think they, they've said that oftentimes rape is the result of this. Men that rape a woman want to exercise control. Their idol is to control somebody. And they, 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 the outgrowth of that is, is unfortunately rape. Another example that I give you is, is let's say somebody's a workaholic. Okay? Um, and I've been accused of that too. <laughs> I'm sure a number of you have too. Because <laughs> so I think we have a lot of type A personalities in this church. <laughs> Um, why is somebody a workaholic? Okay? Are you working hard because you're hoping that you're going to earn a lot of money, you're going to be a millionaire by the time you're 40, and then you can just sit back and play golf and lay on the beach in Bali for the rest of your life? Some people are workaholics for that reason. They want to get rich quick, and they just want to relax and enjoy. They live for the weekends, you know, so they can, they can go on trips to different places, but they, they're, they're workaholics. They, they, they ignore their wives, their, their, their husbands, they ignore their children because they want to make a lot of money. And they want to use that money for the purpose of comfort. It's also possible somebody's a workaholic because they're looking for significance. They want everybody to recognize what they've achieved. They'll buy, they get the money from their hard work, they'll buy a, a nice expensive car, they'll buy a nice expensive house and impress all of their friends and everybody will be so impressed by them. They want to be significant in the eyes of other people. Okay? Another reason that they may want to earn a lot of money is they think, you know, with money, 
I can make people do what I want. I can pay off the politicians. In fact, maybe I can even become a politician. I can pay off the police. I can pay off judges. I can, I can tell, hire a bunch of people that serve me. They want to control people. So I'm just giving you some examples, but I think ultimately what, what Jesus uh, was tempted by, Satan honed in on these three deep idols, comfort, significance, and control. And in each of those areas was trying to find a weakness in Jesus so that Jesus would, would do what Satan wanted him to do. And I think the same happens with us. So I would encourage you to give some thought to this. Maybe after church, maybe at home tonight, maybe with your friends. Ask a couple questions. One of those questions might be, in what areas of your life are you often tempted and um, do you struggle with? Maybe you don't know. <laughs> maybe your spouse does. Maybe your children do. Maybe your workmates do. Secondly, after you identify what areas you struggle with, give some thought to what are the underlying cause of that? Is it that I'm, uh, comfort is my idol? Is it the significance is my idol? Is it the control is my idol? What, am I, what is my idol deep down inside? And as we, we face temptations, I have a, some verses I'd like to share with you um, just to make sure that everything is kept in perspective. One is, don't be surprised when you face temptation. Okay? Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 5 says, Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan is actively trying to tempt you to do something you shouldn't do. And we often forget that. People don't talk about Satan that much. People just think, well, yeah, I, I struggle with this or I struggle with that or I made a mistake. Satan wants you to sin against God. Satan wants you to rebel against God. And he's out there trying to, to encourage you to do so just like he was encouraging Jesus to do. We also learn from 1 Corinthians that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to resist. You can never say, I sinned because uh, the devil made me do it. We had a politician, not a politician, a comedian in the U.S. that used to, I think Flip Wilson was his name, and he used to say that all the time, oh, he did something wrong, the devil made me do it. That's not possible. If you're a child of God, it says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So he will not only not tempt you beyond what you can endure, if you are tempted, he's going to provide a way out so that you don't have to um, deal with the temptation. He's going to provide a way of escape. Another thing you can do, and it's important for you to do to prepare for this temptation, is to study God's Word. Okay? One is because you can wisely face temptation, just like Jesus did, but also you can spot false teaching. If somebody comes along in the guise even of a Bible teacher and tries to persuade you from the Bible to do something or not to do something, you say, hey, that's, not, that, that's taken out of context. That's not right. Just because somebody quotes the Bible, don't just automatically follow them. You need to examine 
what they have to say. It talks in, in the book of Acts about the Bereans being more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they examined the Scriptures to, to check to see if what Paul said was true. And you need to be able to do that too. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's important you know the Bible. Also, you can pray to God that he will not lead you into a place that you're tempted. Um, I don't, you uh, may recall the Lord's Prayer. We're going to be looking at that in, in two more chapters, in chapter 6 of Matthew. And the apostles went to Jesus, the disciples went to Jesus and said, how should we pray, remember? And it says, then this is how you should pray. And part of that prayer, it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay? He's, you're basically praying, God, don't, don't do to me what happened to Jesus. Don't lead me into a place where I'm going to be tempted. I, don't, I want to stay as far, as far away from temptation as possible. That's a, a prayer that, that Jesus said that we should pray. Again, God's not tempting us, but he may allow us to be put in a situation. But we're praying, God, I, I'm, I'm so afraid of being tempted. I'm so not wanting to sin. God, please keep me into, out of a place that I might even be tempted. When you do face trials and tribulations and temptations, and you will, what's your reaction? Well, it says in James you should rejoice. Why do you rejoice? It's not because you're a masochist, because you enjoy having a difficult time, right? You should rejoice because by going through the trial and temptation, you're becoming more mature. It's helping you become more like Jesus Christ. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Two more passages. One is in Hebrews. It reminds us that we should be firmly convinced of the fact that Jesus is, is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. And it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Jesus was tempted not just by Satan. He was tempted in many, things, in many ways in his life. And Jesus, as our high priest, prays on our behalf for us. And he understands what we do, he's, we've been through. He understands the temptations we have. But the difference is, it says, yet he did not sin. And because he didn't sin... He was able to die in our place. No sinful person, no sinful uh, human being could have died in our place. Only a sinless person. And Jesus, through all these temptations, proved he indeed was, was sinless. And it says, when we do sin, First John says, we can be confident that he already paid for our sin when he gave his life as a sacrifice for us. As much as we try to resist temptation, I don't think there's any human being that's ever going to be able to, to pass successfully through this life and not fall into sin. No one. The only person that ever did that was Jesus. And it says, My dear children, I write you this 
so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the world. For those of us that are already believers, we can take comfort in the fact that when we sin, we have an advocate with Jesus, with the Father, who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And our sins have been forgiven. We can remind ourselves of that. But for those of you that are not yet believers, are not yet followers, you've got a problem because your sins aren't forgiven. You're not going to spend eternity with Christ. And I would implore you, I would beg you to think about that fact, where you'll spend eternity without the sacrifice of Jesus who has paid for the sins of those that, that believe. I would implore you to repent of your sin and ask God to forgive you and be thankful that Jesus paid for our sin through his own death. I'd like to play a song in closing. Um, this is uh, for those of us that might have the deep idol of significance where you want to, have a, you want to be significant in the eyes of other people. Uh, it's, a, it's a song by uh, Casting Crowns, and uh, I, I very much uh, like the words. So I'd like to have us listen to that as we close. Make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself. Dream your dreams, chase your heart above all else. Make a name the world remembers. But all an empty world can sell is empty dreams. I got lost in the light, and it was up to me to make a name. Jesus is the only name to remember.